Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. We've looked at the Satipatthana contemplative exercises in turn. Today we can look at the conclusion of the Satipatthana Sutta and draw a few conclusions of our own. The text wraps up by describing what we can expect to accomplish by practicing satipatthana and how long it'll take us to accomplish it. Interestingly, it ends on a playful note. Bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for him, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return, let alone seven years, bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for six years, one of two fruits could be expected of him, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. This paragraph is repeated word for word for five years, for four years, for three years, for two years, for one year. The Buddha can't seem to make up his mind how long it'll take. Final knowledge here and now refers to full and complete awakening, realizing the awakening of the Buddha, so that what was to be done has been done. If there is a trace of clinging left, non-return refers to a near miss. Non-returning is a stage of awakening just short of complete awakening. If there is the slightest trace of clinging, it means that something is still holding us back. Clinging is attachment regarding something as me or mine. There is a bit of self left. In this case, Satipatthana has brought us very far, but not quite there. The Buddha doesn't stop here. Let alone one year, because if anyone should develop these four Satipatthanas in such a way for seven months, one of two fruits could be expected for him, either final awakening here or now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. This paragraph is then repeated for six months, for five months, for four months, for three months, for two months, for one month, for half a month. Finally, the Buddha tempts us with apparently the quickest outcome, let alone half a month bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for him, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. 
the most optimistic prognosis seems to be seven days. This seems like good news if I sign up for the conventional 10-day Vipassana retreat and dedicate myself real hard, then I might be able to return home fully awakened, maybe even three days early. Won't my family be surprised at the new me? Even my dog will probably notice the difference, and my boss will certainly marvel at how efficient I've become. Herein lies the uncertainty about how long awakening takes us. Satipatthana does not exist independently of the rest of the path. One might practice Satipatthana a short time, but if one has not accomplished the rest of the path before that, one's efforts are likely to fall flat. The Buddha advises us in the Samyutta Nikaya, First, establish yourself in the starting point of wholesome states, that is, in purified moral discipline and right view. Then, when your moral discipline is purified and your right view straight, you should practice the four satipatthanas. He does not explicitly exclude some overlap, which is to say you don't have to be a saint before you begin Satipatthana practice, but you darn well need to become one by the middle of Satipatthana practice. It's very clear in the suttas overall that a variety of practices are each necessary for awakening within the broad categories of virtue, mental cultivation, and wisdom. Each is necessary to help loosen the various impediments that hold us back and the road to awakening is very, very long, traditionally many lifetimes. So we have to assume that this claim about the fruit of Satipatthana is true only for one who is already proficient in all the other requisite practices. Satipatthana is the practice responsible for the final breakthrough at the end of this long, long road, a breakthrough in wisdom or insight, in seeing that the world is not what we think it is. It is looking at the magic show of reality from backstage and seeing just how we've been tricked. Satipatthana is like pushing the garage door opener at the end of a long trip. It is not the entire trip itself but we will not attain that breakthrough until we've wholeheartedly dedicated ourselves to the path, then developed right understanding and virtue almost to perfection. We really have to structure our whole life around practice, renounce everything, pursue no sensual pleasures, all of that. Then finally, the last breakthrough to final knowledge here and now is enabled through Satipatthana. Finally, we can open the garage door. The Buddha cannot tell us how long it's going to take because he does not know how long and with what degree of dedication we've engaged Buddhist practice up till now. I don't know how long it's going to take. Maybe seven days, might be seven years. 
There are many who have been engaged in Satipatthana practice for many decades without a final breakthrough. This does not mean they have accomplished nothing. The practice has certainly made a difference in their spiritual development, in their well-being, and in the well-being of others around them. For further advancement, they need to revisit the prerequisite practices. This discourse was directed to monks practicing under his direction, who probably quite engaged in all of the prerequisite practices, 100% dedicated 24-7 to practice with no distractions. At that time and place, and with the necessary ducks in a row, maybe seven years was an upper limit for attaining at least non-returning for them. We get the impression from the early texts that people were becoming awakened right and left, at least among the monks and nuns, when the Buddha was alive to teach them. So it was, with reference to this, that it was said, Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbāna, namely, the four Satipatthanas. This summarizes what is to be accomplished by one with the appropriate prerequisites using the wording of the very beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta. This is what the Blessed One said, the bhikkhus, were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. And so ends the Satipatthana Sutta. I hope I've provided enough discussion to aid in the listener's engagement of this important practice, a practice essential for final awakening. I've called the talks Rethinking Satipatthana because I have been doing a lot of rethinking about Satipatthana myself, much of it while I've been delivering these talks. I hope my rethinking has added clarity rather than confusion to your previous understanding of Satipatthana. The reason I've been rethinking this teaching myself is, first, that there seems to be a lot of variation in the conceptual framework as well as terminology of the Satipatthana, which indicates a wandering away and in different directions from what the Buddha taught. Going back to the earliest sources provides a lot of clarity in this regard. It's not that later variations are necessarily faulty. There have been innovative thinkers and teachers since the Buddha. It's that it's a good idea to go back to the Buddha for a reality check if one is teaching or practicing a variant. More importantly, most of us learn from multiple teachers and multiple frameworks and terms get confusing. Second, I feel that the whole power of the Satipatthana has not been unleashed in the way it is commonly taught. I hear people ask, where is the insight in insight meditation? We're often told that it arises spontaneously, which is to some extent probably true, but in my thinking, a lot of structure 
is right there in the Satipatthana for the systematic development of insight step by step. My approach has been to focus first on the cognitive factors that work together in what I call the Satipatthana or Mindfulness Toolbox. Ardent, fully aware, and recollective, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. They are further extended by samadhi, or more properly, by the factors of awakening. Together, they seem to capture the broad notion we call mindfulness and are also reflected in the term satipatthana itself, recollection, attentiveness. In sorting out the roles of these various factors, we discover their definitions and most proper translations. The satipatthana toolbox models something like general mindfulness, the mindfulness we can practice in our everyday life, independent of the job of contemplation of our experiential world, which is the specific job of the Satipatthana Sutta. I then focus on the role of right understanding and coming to an understanding of the Dharma as the primary purpose of the Satipatthana, of contemplation, examination of experience. This makes sati, recollection, key and also highlights the importance of the contemplation of phenomena, the fourth satipatthana, where we open our practice to the guiding hand of the entirety of the Dharma. The first three satipatthanas, I argue, are the warm-up to the fourth. Insight arises with the realization of the alignment of Dharma with our own experience so that we internalize the Dharma as a matter of direct perception so that we see through the eyes of the Buddha. The Dharmic content of the exercise increases as we move from body to feelings to mind and finally to phenomena. The body contemplations require very little knowledge of Dharma. The breath, human anatomy, the process of decay get little help from Dharma, we're familiar with them through other means. However, there is one consistent and profound Dharma teaching right at the heart of every exercise. This is the topic of what I have called here internal analysis and is expressed in the relentless refrain that follows each and every Satipatthana exercise. This teaching that is brought to mind repeatedly through the practice of internal analysis is the insubstantiality of the world. This is reflected in the teachings of non-self, emptiness, and impermanence. It undermines our presumption of substantial reality, of fixed objects and fixed truths. It reveals their cognitive constructiveness their shoddy construction. One way of saying the same thing is that internal analysis shows us that our concepts fail to reach the reality we presume lies beyond our concepts. The insight that results from internal analysis is important because once we presume substantial reality, we go on to feel, crave, and appropriate as me and mine 
that which we presume, and this results in suffering, establishing a fixed identity, and carrying this condition into the cycle of birth and death. In this regard, recall that the Buddha tells us in the Majjhima Nikaya, Presumption is a disease, presumption is a tumor, presumption is a dart. By overcoming all presumptions, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die, he is not shaken, and does not yearn. For there is nothing present in him by which he might be born. Through repeated practice of satipatthana, we confront insubstantiality over and over again in the wide range of experiential contexts that we visit through the various satipatthana exercises. Insubstantiality is the central theme of the satipatthana sutta, but satipatthana broadens out from there to encompass potentially the entire dharma. Central to this effort is the fourth satipatthana, which is practiced by recollecting a particular aspect of dharma, then running with it. Recollection is sati, any aspect of dharma is dhamma, which we are translating as phenomena. Running with it is related to observable experience. Repeating such exercises over and over makes them familiar, gives a degree of facility over them, and eventually results in their internalization, a matter of direct perception or something equivalent to muscle memory. It turns dharma into a skill rather than a set of teachings. The psychology of this process is familiar in all skill acquisition. However, critical to internalizing the skill of dharma is concentration, another aspect of satipatthana, that is often neglected in the way it is taught, which not only provides clarity as we investigate our own experience, but also challenges us to see the Dharma without having to think about it to perfect the process of internalization. Again, psychology of concentration is familiar in human skill acquisition. It is found within Buddhist practice as a mental state that arises spontaneously as we take refuge, as we practice generosity or precepts, as we memorize scripture, and so on. It seems to me it has its equivalent in modern psychology in the concept of flow, also closely associated with development of a skill and experience spontaneously by practitioners of refined skills. What makes Buddhist concentration unique is that we learn to cultivate it and maintain it at very deep levels for long, sometimes very long periods of intense practice, rather than just stumbling in and out of concentration. This makes it very powerful when we fold it into satipatthana practice. And with this, we bring our series on the Satipatthana to rest. I have not yet addressed the Satipatthana much in my writing, but plan to do so in the near future. I hope some listeners will follow my efforts in that medium. Next week, I think I will talk about 
Buddhist terminology and translation of Pali terms into English for a bit. Thank you.